there's this um, video I really like from this South African actress hmm. and she's being interviewed and the interviewer is like, you know, you, you always have money, like, you, you know, you're doing pretty well. How's this going? And she's like, yeah, like money likes me. Money, like when it's out in the crowd, like it comes and it sits next to me. Like how money is comfortable around me. And essentially sort of what she's saying is like, you guys are all acting like awkward and weird around the energy of money. <laughs> and so money's stiffening up and like not wanting to hang around you because no one wants to hang around awkward people. And she's like, I'm comfortable with money. Money likes me. We have a relationship. And I really feel that way. You know, they say women shouldn't be bossy. We're out here reclaiming that word. What's so wrong with being the boss? I've been waiting for this episode for months. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about money. She loves it. I love money. Money with Kate. Okay, but like, let me give you the, okay. So I saw Sam Parr do a solo episode of My First Million about money, and it got me to click on it immediately because it was like, this is how much Sam spends in a month or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm so interested. So if the audience doesn't know Sam Parr, he like made a boatload of money when he sold his newsletter, The Hustle, to HubSpot. And when I say a boatload, I mean, like, I think it sold for like 25 or $30 million. I don't know what of that he got, but that gives you a sense of scale. So on the show, he talks about how he spends like $25,000 a month or something. Like his just outgoing costs personally are about 25K. And he like went through and broke it all down. And I'm super nosy. Like, I love to know what people spend and I love to know how much they make and what they're investing in. And like, that's my jam. So I was like, I think it'd be really fun to do something like that on Bossy. Does 25K feel like a lot to you or a little to you? Like, what was your response to that? Uh, I would say relative to normal people, it's absolutely a lot. But for someone who's worth presumably $15 million, it's like nothing. Because 25000 a month is, I'm even trying to do the fast math now in my head of what 25K a month is per year. That'd be what, 300000 a year? Something like that. And... That is not a lot, like as a percentage of his net worth, even if he had yeah. no other money coming in, if his net worth is invested in the S&P 500, like it would support him spending 300K a year for the rest of his life with ease. Yeah. And there's a couple of different components of this conversation because there's like, how much do you spend and also where do you spend it? Like, what do you spend money on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Tara, tell me, how do you spend your money? What do you what do you like to spend money on? Maybe let's start there. Okay, so Ramit Sethi has this like show on Netflix. He has a lot of things beyond this yes, show on he Netflix, does. but he has a show on Netflix. What is it called? I will. His book is called "I Will Teach You to Be Rich." I think the show might be called "How to Get Rich." Yeah, some some variation mm -hmm. of that, right? And so he talks about this concept of having a rich life, yeah, which means that you kind of one of the components is that you select specific things you want to spend money on that make you feel good, that excite you, and not spend a bunch of money on the stuff that just doesn't do it for you. So my boyfriend and I had this conversation together. For us, differently, there's different things that make us feel like we have a rich life. For him, it's food. And so we incorporate that. He's definitely leveled up my food experience, my food life. Okay. Because for him, he's like, I want restaurant quality food in the house at all times. Wow. Like we'll have the Wagyu. We're going to have like nice stuff in the house, right? That's for him. And for me, it's two things. One, it's like homes slash hotels, like places I'm staying. I like beautifully designed places. It keeps me inspired. I produce better work. I come up with better ideas. I make more money in beautiful spaces. Okay. And also fashion. Similar concept, right? Like it's like express myself. I inspire myself. I end up being my own muse with fashion. And so those are areas where like I get a lot of bang for my buck. And I think if you look at my budget, like how I spend money in different places, it's reflective of that. Side note on Ramit Sethi, business note, that man is so good at keeping his messaging points clear and consistent. Uh, and that is so important when you are like an entrepreneur that is trying to get a message across. You just very quickly, and I assume you have not read the book and spent no. a whole lot of time in his stuff, but you picked up on the message. He is so good at that. He hits it over and over and over again. So yeah. what do you pay yourself? Okay. I pay myself. Do you want me to tell you what I pay myself or like what I spend? I would like to know what you pay yourself, but then I would also like to know how you then break that down and okay. what you're spending on. I pay myself maybe less than you would think. Okay. I'm intentional about how I structure this. So there's 
how, what, okay, let me, how do I say this? There is what I pay myself as like an employee of my company. Mm -hmm. And then there are perks that I have access to as benefits of being an employee of my company. And those have a separate value, right? So I pay myself, a, let's say around approximately $100,000 a year. Okay. It's a little under that. That yeah. does surprise me. That is less than I would have thought, especially because you're over here talking about, I like to be in these beautiful spaces. I like fashion. I'm like... She's a spender. I That's am some spending expenditures. Okay, so I actually, first of all, I'm not crazy spender with, for example, fashion. Okay. I rent a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I think, for example, like when you see celebrities and they're wearing like this gown, like they didn't Givenchy? buy. They've got the Givenchy gown. Like they didn't buy that. They rented that. Yeah. Usually. Or the designer gave it to them or to Or someone wear. gave it to them to wear and earlier in their career they just rented it. Yeah. Or some combination of the yeah. two, right? Their stylist has access to that. So I rent things. I also, sometimes I wear things on the show and then I return them. That happens too, mm. right? And I get like a lot of fun and life out of it. And then like I also will I shop with independent designers and smaller designers that aren't super, super expensive. I also do, do love fast fashion too, right? Like I will buy the like cheaper thing and like have a really great experience. I know people feel weird about, cheap, about fast fashion. Mm. I don't feel that weird about it. Like I don't need the real thing. Okay. I am the real thing. Oh. A moment of a silence for the ripple effect that just went through this room. Yeah. I am the real thing. There was some like football player that was talking about how he wears fake earrings. Like he doesn't wear real diamond earrings. He gets his earrings from Claire's and how like <laughs> everybody believes him that they're real earrings. Because they know he's rich. And they know he's rich. And he's like, you know how I stay rich? I buy my earrings from Claire's. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually love that. I think you, you also are savvy about, I learned this about you early on, you're savvy about like where you live and where you work. Yeah, too. I live in Mexico City, which also kind of gives me a little bit more like cost reduction. So let me tell you sort of how I spend yeah, my money. Yeah, let's do that, break it down. Um, and that kind of will give you a sense of, of strategy. So I spend about 2% of my money on like transportation. No that car. dropped radically. I don't have a car. I Uber. Uber's really affordable where I spend a lot of time in Mexico City. So like that, when I was in other cities in Chicago, it was way higher. That dropped down. I spend like 20%, 26% of my money on food. Like I love great restaurants. 26% on food. Is that high? Um, high. Yeah, I would say that's high. What's it quote unquote um, high supposed end. to be? Do you you know? know what? There's actually not like a benchmark for food in the same way there is for something like housing or transportation. But uh, to give you a sense of scale, most people say your housing costs should be around 30% or lower. 30 so you're like lower. you're hitting like housing numbers on food, <laughs> which does. aligns to your rich life. Yeah, so I say does. actually you're OK. I love a gorgeous restaurant, um, but I do have a balance, though, because from a housing perspective, I'm 12 percent. So I own a building in Chicago that I house hack. So there are other tenants there and their rent pays for the majority of that unit that's mine mm -hmm. so that my contribution to the actual mortgage is really low. Mm -hmm. um, and so that allows me to have a really low number there. And that's not the place that you live because you live in Mexico City. I spend City. time. I split my time between Chicago okay. and Mexico City. I, when I'm in Mexico City, and we can talk about this when we get into like tax strategy, but there are things I mentioned to you that are benefits that I have, mm -hmm. that I have access to of running my business. And one of those is that I'm intentional here about my language. You'll follow my strategy in the language. My business in its name has a lease for an office space in Mexico City. And that office space has some expenses. It has housekeepers. It has other expenses for things for like cleaning services and things mm -hmm. like that for utilities. And I often am there and I have access to that space. And so does it's a retreat space for my team. We have planning meetings mm -hmm. there. We have all sorts of things that we have access to there as well. Great. So let's talk about looks. Looks. Okay. So I spend 14% of my money on like clothing, hair, beauty, looks, L-E-W-K-S in general. Looks. Yeah. Just like all of that stuff. What about like the smaller pieces of the puzzle now? Like, okay, like for example, I have like subscriptions to things and like small bills. That's maybe like 5%. I really love like reality TV and I've got like every single, you know how like everybody's got a separate you streaming gotta service? Peacock, you got to get Hulu. You got to, yeah. I got all of them. You got all okay, of them. Okay, I got them all. Um, that's like, I think maybe I didn't talk about like travel and 6% on travel, like 9% on just like entertainment fun stuff. And then 26% on savings. That's a very high savings rate. Yeah. And are you saving that money in cash? 
Yeah, for the most part. So you're, you have the cash. Okay, got it. So my breakdown is uh, a little bit different. I do okay. about 22% on housing. Mm-hmm. We actually just, that's a lot more than we used to spend because we moved into a larger space. And so part of that space is office for me. So I'm going to have to talk to my accountant about how we treat that this year. Yep. And then it's also just, I realized that we're moving to California. I want to live on the water. And I spend all my time in my house. So it's an area that I want to spend a lot of money because it's where I spend all my time. I spend about 7% on food. So a very small fraction. Wow. We do a lot of cooking at home, but it's very, I would say it's repetitive in the sense that like I will make that a lot helps. of the same things over and over again. And once you start getting a lot of those like core ingredients, you don't have to keep buying them over and over mm. again. So I'll just be replenishing the meat, the veggies, and then. That's good. I'm like, what's the specific kind of salt that we need for this meal? Let's just order it. Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Oh, my God. I still feel like we spend a lot on food, like, relative to when I talk to other people. It's still, like, over 1000 1500 a month. But then there's pets. Our pets are very expensive because our dog has cancer, and so she requires a lot of treatment. Yeah. Sam, my cat, is, like, indestructible, so not so much there. He <laughs> That's a 3% of our money goes to pets. Travel, 5%, so you and I are actually yeah. kind of similar. And then I save about 55%. So of the wow. money I'm taking home, it's, like, for every dollar we're bringing in, it's like 50 cents is getting spent, 50 cents is going into the investments. Interesting. And most of that savings is going into an investment like what kind? Uh, so I will use my husband and I, we have a joint brokerage account. Yeah. And so I do want to get into investments a little bit more. Uh, but for the sake of keeping this answer short, most of what's coming in on a monthly basis is going into a brokerage account that's okay. invested in the S&P 500, some global stocks, some bonds, but really not many, and like emerging markets funds, small cap values. So it's like a portfolio of ETFs that I have with M1 Finance. And so that's our that's where we shove, we're shoveling, I would say, the majority of our savings every year. Because yeah. there's no like contribution limit the same way there is with some of the other accounts I want to talk about. Okay, so we got a little bit hardball already. You told me the 100K. I would love to know, like, is that normal for you? Are you typically paying yourself 100K? Has this gone up and down? What's, like, the most you've ever earned in a single year? It goes up and down, but what I will say is that if there's a scenario where I'm W-2, like, just receiving as an employee, more than 250K, something's gone wrong. How so? Because I've now... When you, I own 100% of my business, right? And so I have the ability to have business expenses and have scenarios and structure something so I'm not getting my butt kicked in taxes. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm just paying myself out all of that with a W-2, I'm getting my butt kicked in taxes. Like I'm not really thinking about the strategy because first of all, my company has to pay in order to like pay me on the as a W-2 mm-hmm. and payroll, there's payroll taxes that the company has to pay. Yes. Then I have to pay on the other side of that yep. money. So I get like double taxed yep. when I pay myself. Exactly. Then, uh, you know, at the end of the year, I also have tax on that. So in order to not get my butt kicked on that, I, I think if I have scenarios where I'm not investing in the business or having business expenses where that makes sense, I'm, I'm messing up my strategy. So that's like my number where like something's gone wrong. I got you. I got you. And did you use, was there any rhyme or reason that you hit 250 or was it just kind of like there is something about that number that starts to feel like now we're getting into no Girl, yeah, land? tax brackets. 250 single. Yeah, yeah. So like we start to look at like different tax brackets. Where That's are you sort getting of like a, into, is that like where you hit the 32? I don't know if it's exactly where you hit 32, that might be but where it's you kind of like we're starting to get close. To 32. Yep, yep. And so your tax bracket changes. So then that marginal rate on that incremental dollar is that much higher. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So wait, so every month if it's 100K, you're spending how much per month personally? No, so that 100K I'm spending on, that's what I'm, that's what I'm paying myself personally. Oh, that's now, what I mean. Of that money that you're taking home, how much of that is outgoing every month? That's got to be like 6K? I don't know what you mean by outgoing. Spending. Oh, that I'm not saving. Yes. Uh, yeah, maybe something like that. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I together will spend probably between ten and twelve thousand yeah. a month. Well, I think if you think about so personally I'm spending maybe like six, seven K, but there's a lot more that I like get spent on things that I have access to as like perks 
that I have access to mm. as an executive of my business. Like, for example, yeah. my business pays for the majority of or a good bulk of my phone bill that is for business expenses. Because, for example, I'm on Instagram doing social media. Those are all business expenses for me because that's part of my brand. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the office. We have an office in Mexico City that I spend time at. So there's all these different things that the business expenses that are perks that I have access mm -hmm. to. And so if you sort of look at like total compensation of all of the perks. Right. My business offers me health insurance. It also pays as a perk for my life insurance. So all of those things end up being business perks. If you look at sort of like total compensation of what's being spent on me, it's much more than that. Um, but what I'm paying myself is maybe then that range. I got you. Yeah. I got you. So you mentioned that you own 100% of your business. Yeah. So like, do you know your net worth? No. You don't know your net worth? No. Okay. It's th that, that feels like a... Do you know yours? Yes. Okay, so the <laughs> net worth thing feels to me like it is a specific fixation of folks who have mainly stock portfolios, real estate too. Real estate, yeah. you can like yes. easily calculate it. Because most of my net worth is in my own businesses and real estate, real estate I can calculate because I can look at like the Zillow, what the, the real estate is probably worth. It like calculates it and I can make a guess there. Mm -hmm. But like, how much I will sell my business for at one point. Like, we're just guessing. Yeah. And also the real estate feels like we're just guessing too. Like, mm -hmm. you don't know exactly what I'm going to sell my house for. I feel like the stock market thing feels like guessing too because if the stock tanks tomorrow, you just don't have like, that net worth anymore. That's a guess too sure, in a way. But there's also, I think... There's also some value in understanding your balance sheet and yeah. your assets minus liabilities. Yeah. What do I have available to me to produce income? Whether that is real estate can produce income, stocks can produce income, your business can produce income. Yeah. So like what can you tap? And then what are you on the hook for? Your mortgage, yes. potentially debts that you've taken out for the business, personal loans. Like there's it's good to understand. So really net worth is yeah. just assets minus liabilities. What's the net net there? Yeah. I think if I take out my biggest asset of my business out of the equation, I can then like calculate more simply. But with that in the equation, it becomes harder to like calculate. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're like 10%. I feel like we have a 10% cash position right now. Actually, it's maybe a little bit less than that. And then 90, 95% of it is in the stock market. So wow. we have pretty much all of our money is in the stock market. Because you've already sold your business, so you've taken that money off the table. You right. Don't own, you, you don't own percentages of your business currently, right? I own 0% of money with Katie. That's correct. Yeah. So I think, though, the stock market is something where I look at entrepreneurs that have all their net worth in their business, which is which is normal, we'll say, and we should get into this. But And I think... You need to diversify your risk. You want to have money available to you that is not in that concentrated bet. Like we have to take some chips off the table because you don't want to be wiped out and left with nothing. Yeah. It's yeah. one company versus yeah. you invest in the S&P 500. You're in 500 businesses. Mm, I get that. I, though, personally prefer having my net worth in something that I have like more control of and I can drive as opposed to like all of my my net worth centered around some like old crusty white man making decisions for this Fortune 500 company that like I don't know this man and what decisions he makes and like what direction he's going to take the company like I, I get I probably could be convinced by the way mm -hmm. to like invest more in the stock market I just like it is not appealing may I convince me. you yes may I try, try to convince you try okay. how much do you know about I would say the annualized return of the S&P 500, the annual compound annual, like the, the compound annual growth rate of the S&P 500. How much do you think it grows Really good. Okay, so that's like the inflation adjusted growth rate. So it's really closer to like 9 or 10% per year growth. If okay. you do 100 years back, how okay. many businesses can you think of that have grown at a compound annual growth rate of 10% every year for 100 years? Like none of them. Nothing has done that for 100 years. But because the okay. S&P 500 is an index, it's self-cleansing. So you're getting the best 500 companies at any point in time. Mm -hmm. A company starts slipping off. They fall off the index. Oh, look, Tesla's popping off. It enters the index. Yeah. So you're only ever owning the best stuff. Yeah, I get that. Or the stuff that the market is valuing the highest. Mm -hmm. So I think... Part of part of it's that is that you're just you you can look at this and say, OK, if the future is anything like the past was, I want in on that. 
Now, there's it's that's a very simplistic explanation. There's a lot of nuance about price to earnings ratios and whatnot that really aren't relevant for the purposes of this conversation. But understanding how compounding works and how yeah. exponential compounding works is very valuable. I, I think, though, there's also this like component of risk. Like you and I talk about like risk a lot in strategy and how we talk about our own businesses. I feel like that approach of having so much of my net worth in S&P 500 feels like a different, a mismatch to my risk portfolio, like my risk perspective. Do you think that's true How or no? So? Do you think that's riskier or less risky? It's than less you? risky than I am in a season of in my life right now. Because I think the season's important. I think when I'm like 70, that's going to be totally different. And it's probably really appropriate for me to have way more of my money. But given like what you know about me and like how I think about risk, like what percentage, and this is just like your opinion, mm-hmm. of net worth do you think it would make sense for me to have in stock market? I have some, but your perception that being invested in an index fund is less risky than owning than having all your money and net worth tied up in one thing that you own. That is accurate. Yeah, it is less risky. However, this idea that like I'm going to invest in the S&P 500 when I'm 70. Too late. Yeah, not when I'm 70. I think it's going to be a slow progression to change. But right now I kind of want to bet on me. Not that dude running the whatever S&P 500 business portfolio company. <laughs> like I'm having a hard time betting on him over me. I That's would, where I get stuck. I would say I love your I, – well, I love the, the self-belief. I think that that's yeah. awesome. I think there's something there that I would say counterpoint yeah. is that by betting everything on yourself, you are putting a lot of pressure on future you – to keep wanting to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, and I think I agree with that. where I step back and go, let me give future me more optionality mm. is I want to take the pressure off future Katie. I want current Katie who's down to work really hard to set her up in the future to where if she doesn't want to work that hard yeah. anymore, she doesn't have to. And so I think if she continues to want to, great. There's nothing stopping her. She could keep doing deals, Long Island accent, she could keep (laughs) going, but she wouldn't have to keep going. And so I think that's where if you are paying yourself, and I think there's a way to do this intentionally with tax strategies, where if we're concerned, if the reason we're not taking more money out of the business and investing it in our own future as like income for the future, then I think it's important to know about ways that you can do that with things like a SEP IRA or a solo 401k, these accounts where the contributions are themselves a write-off. And so you're not paying taxes on the money you're contributing. It's just like money you're spending. But yeah. I think that the the risk with like, I'm getting a bunch of write-offs is like, I'm letting the tax tail wag the dog and I'm spending a bunch of money so I don't have to pay taxes on it. But I think a lot of people hear that you're a savvy person. So you're investing in things for the business. You're you're putting more money into the business so that it will grow larger. I think yeah. a lot of people that own businesses think about how can I spend this money just so I'm not it's not I'm not going to have to pay taxes on it. But then you don't you're you're spending a dollar to save 30 cents. Mm. And that doesn't really make sense. I don't know that you're saving 30 cents though. Like I think that there are some examples of this. What did you call it? You said spend what's the the dog tail? <laughs> you're you're letting the tax tail wag the dog. Letting the tax tail wag the dog. I think when you look at the big dogs, like people who have large amounts of money, the tax tail wags the dog a little bit in that there's huge amounts of savings and huge amounts of like strategic stuff to be thinking around so that you're not getting taxed so heavily Mm -hmm. and you are not like just giving that money to the IRS, to the government, and instead can reinvest that and make that money work for you. So like, how do you think about tax planning and Mm -hmm. strategy? Are there things that like, is that part of your plan? Yeah, and I think it's something that because I'm in a unique situation as a, as a founder because I sold 100% of my brand to a yes. larger entity with a defined contract period that said, okay, we are agreeing that for this period of time, I will work for you and you now own the brand. Now, it was in my best interest in that framework to negotiate a deal wherein I can extract as much of the value as possible 
over that defined period so that I get the full benefit of the brand in the event that at the end of the period, they say, never mind, we would like to let you go. Yeah. We're going to keep the, the brand and that's ours now. But that means over those three years, you better get what you perceive to be the full value of your brand back. Otherwise, you just sold for less than you should have. So you're saying that you instead of front loading it, it's just you that get that payout happens over time. Is that what you're saying? Right. Because it's like it's like you're a W-2 employee now. So you're being paid for the value of your work at the same time that you're being paid for the value of the brand. So Mm. it's like it's like amortizing it over time. So if, if the length were 10 years, well, now you're not really trying to cram it into a short amount of time. But in the event that it's not that long and you know that the contract is going to end and they might not renew you. Well, now you have to be really smart about how you are taking, which which then from a tax perspective isn't great. It's giving me heart palpitations from a tax planning perspective because that means that all of that money that you receive then just gets like max taxed. I have owed probably in 2021 when I had W-2 jobs and I did money with Katie as a 1099 type income. I think I owed like 50K in taxes. I owed 50K again last year. I don't know how much I'm going to owe this year because I actually don't have as much income that's like not already being withheld. I, I, I think I've already paid over six figures in taxes this year, though. OK, so maybe we're not like the analogy of like to save 30 cents. We're not talking about 30 cents here anymore. But okay, true. So, but that's the that's the thing with the W two is that yeah. I think it limits your options a little bit, and so um, yeah, I'm not trying to offset gains by rolling them forward because the future is not guaranteed in that yeah. way, and so it's like the risk adjustment around that. However, what I can do is the money that I will earn from something like a book advance. That comes through. That's separate. That's not W-2 income. So now it's like, all right, well, that's business income that I can now get a little bit more flexibility with. Yeah. How can I write some of this off? So I have expenses that I can apply to that, you know, business travel or assistance or, or, you know, agents or lawyer fees. If you're paying a lot of lawyers for things like there are things that I that I'd have to be spending money on anyway that I can write off against that. Yeah. There are also things like a solo 401k, which because I don't have any full time employees personally, like me, my personal LLC does not employ any full time employees. I can have a solo 401k, which is a plan that I can put 20 percent of my net business income into and basically wipe off and write off 20 percent of my net business income by investing it. So now I'm keeping it. It's boosting my net worth and I'm not spending taxes on it versus it's going out the door to not spend taxes on it. I think the strategy that you have makes a ton of sense for a just sort of risk profile and but also being post-acquisition, right? right? I think things really change there. And I think the ability to like change all of your business expenses when now you've sold the company and someone else owns that business, like you don't have all of those same levers to pull. So for example, like it would be hard for you at this point to say like, okay, I'm not going to pay 100% of myself through the W-2 and instead I'm going to split this and pay myself some through the W-2 and some is like taking a draw from the company because they're taxed differently. Or like, for you to, you know, determine all of the business expenses, you might have to, like, run that by someone else now because they, like, own the company. So some of those moves that you can make are less uh, fruitful you got in less this room scenario. To wiggle. You're exactly you got a little right. room to wiggle, whereas I think I have a little bit more room and space to maneuver. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, like, you have to, if you have an LLC, you have to, by law, like, pay yourself, I think, I forget what the term is, but it's sort of, like, a reasonable salary. I think that's an S-corp. Is a reasonable salary. Okay, great. An yeah. S-corp is a reasonable salary. And what that reasonable salary is can just be justified by some sort of comp that you found. But that quote, reasonable salary, is kind of wiggly, yes. right? And so you pay yourself through that W-2, through that reasonable amount, but you can also kind of pay yourself in other ways so that you have different kinds of compensation. That's hard to do once you've sold your company. And so I often think, like, sometimes we talk about financial advice, and I actually did this myself. Like, I had a period where I would start reading blogs about financial advice and reading things and thinking that there's like one way to do it. And in reality, like the context of your situation is so important. Like I think most things that I read about finance and how you should plan your financial strategy are not for me. 
Hmm. Like they're not made for someone who has like a cash flowing business that is owns 100 percent of it. And it also has like high earning potential. Like my relationship with money is a really big piece of how I think about this. There is this um, video I really like from this South African actress Hmm. and she's being interviewed and the interviewer is like, um, you know, you you always have money, like, you know, you're doing pretty well, how's this going? And she's like, yeah, like money likes me. Money, like when it's out in the crowd, like it comes and it sits next to me, like money is comfortable around me. And essentially sort of what she's saying is like, you guys are all acting like awkward and reared around the energy of money. And so money's <laughs> stiffening up and like not wanting to hang around you because no one wants to hang around awkward people. And she's like, I'm comfortable with money. Money likes me. We have a relationship. And I really feel that way. I think maybe it's not a good thing that I feel that way because I have a lot of faith in myself. And also I think as I like continue to step into scenarios where I get paid to just be myself, like mm. I think the idea that like, I think I had this idea before that like, oh, as I continue to work I just have to work harder to make more money and actually it's it in reality been the opposite like I just am working more easefully and I can totally imagine so many scenarios later on in my career where I'm just getting paid large amounts to just easefully be myself and so I think that that kind of like struggles though mm. with my thoughts around so much like I've got to like diversify my portfolio of how I spend my money and like how I invest my money because I have maybe too much. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Like faith in myself yeah. and sort of how I will create there. But I think it's really centered around that like relationship I have with money. We'll be right back to the conversation after a quick break. Okay, back to the show. When it comes to investing and diversification, yeah. diversification is the name of the game once you are invested in the stock market. Yeah. You do not want to have your entire portfolio in one stock. Like that, that's not how wealth gets created. That right? can wealth go gets- to zero. But that's also how wealth gets destroyed. Mm. Is that the S&P 500 can't go to zero. A single stock can. So a big bet, you can win big, you can also lose everything. And I think it's the opposite side of the coin that we often urge people to protect themselves against is take measured bets and don't take bets that are going to give you the opportunity of losing your shirt and having to start all over. Now, risk tolerance is super important for that. And I think that you're onto something, though, with... The faith that you have that you will always be able to create more income for yourself. Someone could say, oh, well, that's foolish. You shouldn't. But but I think that there's actually quite a healthy amount of belief that is required. To be an entrepreneur, for sure. Right. I think that it's good that you feel that way because I think it's going to put you in situations that are going to make it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I'm definitely in like the wealth creation phase Mm -hmm. of my life. And in general, wealth gets created in concentrated positions. You take then that wealth and then diversify it to grow it and expand it. But like, I don't know, like we're talking about people who end up with like large, large net worths. They took some big risk, some big bet that could have totally failed, or maybe they did uh, multiple bets and some of them failed, and then they took that concentrated position and maybe diversified it later. Um, But I think like, I really am liking how you framed this, Mm. which is like, uh, my position and stance is like, no, wealth gets created in concentrated bets, I'm betting on myself. And I think that maybe once I've then cashed that out or made some diversification, then then I'm diversifying, right? And I'm hearing you sort of say on the other side of that, no, well, wealth can get created in concentrated bets, it also just gets destroyed Mm -hmm. in concentrated bets. And now we're talking about risk. I think that, that that's the survivorship bias is that you hear from the people that say wealth gets created in concentrated positions because yeah. those are the ones that made it. Yeah. The people who bet everything and lost it all, they're gone. But it so definitely doesn't get created. It them. doesn't get created in diversified positions. Well, I think it depends on what how you define wealth. Okay. Okay, great. Can you say more about that? Of course. If you were to invest consistently into the S&P 500 over 40 years of working, you would have, I mean, okay, let's be, I guess, put some different numbers into it. One dollar that I put into the S&P 500 today is going to roughly 15 to 20 X over 40 years. Okay. So time is the biggest component. It's that, and people's brains have a hard time intuiting this, mine included. It's just an unnatural phenomenon. But when something exponential compounding, something like exponential compounding, 
it's like your interest is earning interest and then that interest is earning interest. And, and it's like we can't c- contemplate that type yeah, of growth yeah. very easily. But it is not uncommon for someone to just consistently invest in the S&P 500 over a couple decades and end up with $5 million later. Now, if $5 million is not true wealth, then... Okay, that's 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 a semantic difference here. Yeah. Are you going to get a hundred million dollars by just putting a thousand bucks a month into the S and P five hundred? Certainly not. But you're going to get two or three for sure. So I think mm. that that's that's kind of the difference. I would also uh, maybe highlight that the entrepreneurs that we're thinking about when we talk about uh, where entrepreneurs generally keep their money more broadly in asset allocation, it is interesting because you can look by net worth level where people's assets are. So for people that have a net worth between $10,000 and $99,000, their car is usually the most valuable thing that they own. It's th- Their wow. car is worth more than their savings account. When you get into the one hundred k to $999,000 range, their primary residence is often the most valuable yeah. thing that they own. with their retirement accounts being the close second. And it's not until you eclipse the million-dollar net worths that you start to see business interests starting to come into play where the business is the most valuable thing that they own. Most multimillionaires or billionaires are not liquid. They have most of their wealth in business interests. But we have to remember the scale here that even people that are worth $100 million 50% of that is typically in stocks, which means these people have $50 million in the stock market. Yeah, because they're in the preservation phase. They've taken the risk off the table. Yes. So I think that that's potentially what we're getting at here is that, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos doesn't have $200 billion sitting there in cash, but it's also not like his entire, he probably has a couple billion in stocks that are not yeah. just tied up in Amazon. Which, But your, at some point, it was really concentrated and tied up in Amazon, which I think is a really great nuance of this conversation, which is it is not one strategy for your whole time period. At one point, right. all of your focus and net worth was in money in Katie, or a large money with Katie, a lot a large percent of it, mm-hmm. and then you ended up sort of selling, expanding, and you know, strategy changes. That actually mm-hmm. happened. Is that true? I would say so. Like your strategy I think was different. Over I time. didn't know really what the value of the business was. To your point about, well, we're guessing. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. Yeah, the thing about I think our situation is that I don't see it really as an either or. I don't feel as though it has to be. I'm either and let's let's do an alt let's maybe do a counterfactual where I do own hundred percent of money with Katie. Yeah. I think I would still feel like I'm not going to keep all of the money invested in my own thing. I think I still would want and that's probably indicative yeah. of risk tolerance. But what's important to me is that people and women in particular, I think given my personal mission, that once you have money, that money is going out and making more money for you somehow. Yes. Whether it's in real estate, whether it's in cash flowing businesses, whether it's in the stock market. Yeah. That that money is making money, more money for you. Because that really, whether we're talking concentrated or diversified positions, hundred percent. That's how wealth gets created. Yes. That's a hundred percent of the game. There's a really interesting example of this. Okay. So of of how strategically wealth gets created and preserved that I know about. So there is this family. I won't say their name. Um, I met um, both members of the family and also their managers of their family office. Okay. Right. So, like, we're talking about money here because they've got a family office. Yes, family office. That's yes. when the okay. kind of goes up. So they, this family has this document, this white paper that they've written. It's like sort of wow. semi-external because they want to share with the public kind of how they have strategized this. And it's a really beautiful document. I cannot wait. I'm I'm going to text it to you. It's a really amazing document, but I'll tell you sort of like some of the like main points here. So first of all, the document starts off and it gives like the history of the family and their entrepreneurial mindset and like endeavors. Right. So like we're starting like mission statement. Immediately. I'm like, I want to do this. It goes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I want to make this. I am like (laughs) studying this document and I absolutely will like would love to create this and sort of lots of elements from this. So here's how this works. So there's a guy who they call sort of like G1 generation one wealth creator of the family. Right. This guy years ago started a bank. Oh, my God. He started a bank. 
and had his sister and his brother-in-law invest, mm-hmm. right? So the bank then gets acquired, and the family has a windfall of money, not just to that one guy who started it, but to three lines of the family, right? The guy who started it, but also his sister-in-law, and also, or sorry, sister and brother-in-law as well. So okay. now, like, three people have done well, right? This is the whole history of it. Okay. The daughter of this guy who sold the company starts a family office and mainly what she's trying to do is avoid this phenomenon you might have heard of it it's like from shirt sleeves to shirtless in three generations anderson cooper i think is a vanderbilt and he their family is often used as an example yes his mother's glory of vanderbilt yep and how i think he is one that has almost broken that curse very publicly because Uh, like the vanderbilts obviously you've heard of them you know they're super wealthy but yes most most really wealthy families like after, th- is it three generations? The three generations gone? is typically what they say. So, like, shirt sleeves is where you've got money. You're, like, yeah. you know, doing really well to sleeveless. No, like, th- those resources are now ripped off yep. in three generations. And the idea shirtless. is that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, uh, Or shirtless. It's not. Yeah, sleeveless. you're shirtless. out here shivering. Shirt gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, because the, some, some generations sort of, like, kind of took it for granted and squandered the money. Someone so screws it up. This family is like, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Right. So they develop a family office. To do two things. One, to do private investment opportunities for the family. So not stock market opportunities, but like private equity. They're going to go find businesses that they're going to acquire a stake in because they feel like that can, and I'll talk about that in a second, but they feel like they can do better than like a stock market. And also the family office does traditional family office services. So that means that like everybody in the family has an office just for them, for like tax planning, for legal services, for financial education, like that's their family office for those things, right? So this is the intro of the document like the history of the family and like also why entrepreneurship is in the dna of the family like Mm. they're clearly stating that up front right then they go into the philosophy of their strategy what they're going to do so what happened and it's all centered around kind of like what this grandfather father did so he sold the bank but he did it in an all stock sale so he was like i'm not going to take the cash out all stock sale. Meaning okay. the, so yep. the, the company that bought him, he was like, don't give me cash. Just give me stock in your business instead. Wow. So still concentrated because Bruh. he intentionally did not liquidate. In- incredibly high risk tolerance. Don't make me liquid. Just give me was the that a, assets. And that illiquid. was a tax strategy? He did not want to? Or was it because he wanted to just... It's like you're in the casino and you hit and then you're so like... So definitely he would have got his ass handed to him in taxes when yes. he had that liquidation. Right? So I don't know at the time exactly like how okay, much for so But this is like the history of okay. what they do now. Because what they do now is intentionally kind of centered around what the strategy. What bank bought them? So, you know? okay... There is a bank that buys the original bank, right? And another bank then buys the bank that acquired them. Oh. And the bank that acquires them, like, kind of like big sharkies, little sharkies, but like, that's yeah, kind of what's yeah, happening. Yeah. The biggest shark ends up being J.P. Morgan. Oh, maybe you've heard of them. Yes, maybe you've heard of them. So now they've not got shares in the business that originally bought them. They've got J.P. Morgan shares, which we know are valuable, right? So... In this letter, in this white le- white paper, they're talking about this cautionary tale because a traditional financial advisor would have told them to liquidate, mm. but they would have gotten hit with these like thirty one percent capital gains tax. If you do the math, the return would have had yeah. to be so much that like to offset those that thirty one percent, like it almost wouldn't have like made as much sense. And so instead, what they decide to do is borrow conservatively against the stock. Mm-hmm. Which means they say, we have this huge valuable yes. thing. Give us cash as like a loan against that. We're not going to liquidate the it's stock. It's almost like a margin loan. Yes. And in reality, one of these things you see is when people have high net worth, you can get very easily yes. get loans. The Wall Street Journal you. did a really interesting piece on this called Buy, Borrow, Die. Yeah. Interested. And my friends who have had big exits, like they've told me about this interesting, weird shift where like all of a sudden you can get like very, very favorable loans to you against what you have so so anyway they start going into like breaking this down and also um that how they do their strategy moving forward which is that they take this money and they borrow against it so they now have cash their family is not intention intentionally not liquidating they're intentionally in concentrated positions they borrow money against it mm-hmm. and then they go and they do private equity which is also riskier than maybe stock market where you go find private companies me or my company your company and they mm-hmm. say okay we're going to invest in we're going to own a piece of this 
this. They also then just lastly on this document start going into their tax planning strategy because they're like, we have broken this down. We use three vehicles to, as we do this, intentionally not get are are in trouble with taxes or like have be get pay out so much in taxes. So there's like kids trust, legacy trust, and a family foundation. I'll just tell you about one of them. Okay. So the kids trust, this is like some gangster shit. <laughs> like this is gang. This I love this kind of stuff. Okay, tell okay. me. So what they do is like there's all these lines in the documents and they're like assume one of the family members starts with 10 million dollars and i'm kind of like when i read it i'm like what how like we're just starting off with a kid born 10 million dollars like how does that work so they do some of this with kids trust so what happens is when the each kid is born okay as soon as they're born the family establishes a trust and puts 10 million dollars in it no because if you do that then you're going to get taxed really heavily so it doesn't start that way Right. So what happens is with this trust, like eventually the kid's going to like get half of the trust when they're 25, half of it when they're 30. So they get it when they're they're older Okay. to develop the money in the trust. The grandparents. So this is an intentional skip generation. The parents don't put money in the trust. The grandparents do. OK. These people are organized over generations. Yeah. 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 They are organized. This the grandparents put money in. And they put only the amount that you can put in without being taxed heavily. Like gift tax Gift exclusion. taxes. Gift taxes. So it's like 15K. So uh, if there's four grandparents, right, there's like 60K. Each one, okay, so you've got 60K across them. 60K. Okay. Four, each, four grandparents put 15K each, right? And that's, you know, the amount that they can do without tax consequences. Then once it hits a million dollars over the years, then that trust can start investing like an accredited investor, can start Mm. owning equity in private companies. Oh. And can make these bigger concentrated bets, maybe not in stock market, where there's smaller bets, but like big bets in these private companies, right? So they start then growing aggressively using the family resources to then make those investments. And so they're breaking down, there's like a whole chart. They're like, see index chart 3.5. Appendix 47. Appendix 47, where you can see we took that money and did it in the stock market versus in our strategy of private companies. Companies, now this kid has $10 million by the time that they're 21, 22. And I read this document and I'm like, <gasps> wow. Okay, that's okay. I would say I'm amazed at the level of organization, forethought strategy, amazing. I think the, I, like, it's one of those things where I'm like, that works. If it works, it works if you are consistently making perfect bets in the small private equity plays you're making. Yeah. But I think that's where that is not, to me, Mm -hmm. always going to be sustainable. Yeah. Like, you're not, not every bet you make is going to hit. And so aggressive growth, it's like, well, yeah, if it were that easy to just go quadruple your money in three years, everyone would just go do that. Yeah. Well, I think what happens here is that you don't quadruple your money on every business. Some you're going to cut it in half and one and and some you really win. It's like power law. Yeah. 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 So like that's there, that's the strategy that they're playing here. And I think what it does though, is it really like plays out just different ways that you can approach things with risk. Yes. I think yeah. you and I and our approaches are really interesting sort of parallels of this. And there's not a right or wrong. Right. Right. Totally. I actually think there's pieces for me to learn about from your side too. So like I'm learning as you're talking about versa. this. Yeah. But I think it's just interesting to study mm-hmm. this stuff, to kind of start talking to your friends. Do you talk to your friends at all about this yeah, stuff? I do. Yeah. I talk I, about money with them. To have friends where you can talk to mm-hmm. about this and not or family and like kind of start for start developing the comfortability around this. I sent this document, this this family white paper to like all of my family. I'm like, what are the many ways that we can do this in mm-hmm. our family? So I do think all of this conversation really highlights it's not like a right or wrong way, but I do think that like knowing what your strategy is or starting to articulate it is really useful. Oh, a hundred percent. I love I'm gonna make a white paper like this. Yes. I love that idea of just getting down on paper. This is our almost financial personal narrative yes. about how we're going to establish growth. And that if you're I think there's there's a little bit of an intimidation factor here for people, too, where they're like, well, I don't understand tax law. I don't know about gift tax exclusions. I don't know about estate tax law. Yeah. 
you don't have to. You can hire estate planning attorneys, tax law attorneys. You can talk to, you know, CPAs or re- just general people that are really good with like tax accounting. Yeah. There there are people that can help you with this if you explain to them what you're trying to do, which I think is great. Is like you don't have to be the expert. It's just you got to know which questions to ask, which is like you have to be enough can expert I optimize? to know what questions to ask though, because I do feel like do you have a CPA? You were mm-hmm. someone I feel like when I talk to most entrepreneurs, they do not like their accountants. Like I've yeah. been like crowdsourcing, like who likes someone they work with? And like I, it's hard to get answers. I do think that you, when you work with professionals like this, have to go in with a little bit of insight to be able to direct them. And yeah. that might mean just developing a fun curiosity about this stuff and like starting to learn just piece by piece pieces of information mm-hmm. as opposed to you trying to be intimidated and like have to learn the whole thing. Yeah. It's almost too like asking when you're getting recommendations from people. I saw this parallel the other day. Someone said, it's really hard to find a good dentist because when you ask people if they like their dentist for a recommendation, most of the time it's based on whether or not the person is personable, uh. not on like how good they are at dentistry. I think accounting can be similar where it's like, yeah, I like my accountant. They're super cool. They're super nice. They're super friendly. But like that's not really giving you a good instinct on whether or not this person is a a good fit for you tactically. And so I think it's a little bit like dating where you should look around and you should talk to think of like the most savvy friend you have. And be like, how did you find your accountant? Are they with a group where like I can go hire, so I can hire them, or I can hire someone else that yeah. that works with them, and, and then has that same philosophy? And I yes. think risk perspective, yeah, the same way perspective they communicate with you, yeah. And I also found that like sometimes I was looking for my accountant to do strategy in a big way about like all of the assets. And that's typically not what the CPA does. And so I realized like, oh, as I talk to people, what they really have, people who are kind of making the moves like I want to make. They have like a business manager here who manages CPA. manager. Yeah, yeah, who manages yeah, yeah, yeah. the strategy and can like communicate the strategy to them in the words that they like can understand it in their language and then talk to the lawyer and say, here's what's happening over here. So I do think asking and kind of getting that feedback from people is really useful. And if you don't have people that you know that are like that like go get on reddit go get on twitter go see what people are saying there and it always cracks me up too when when i hear people be like well i'm just gonna mimic warren buffett's investment strategy i'm like oh yeah okay good luck it's it's like when people are like it'd be the same thing as saying well i'm just gonna play basketball like lebron james it's like interesting no but i think if you can articulate (laughs) what it is about warren buffett's strategy that you value investing in particular but like why that you think works for you i think that's better to mimic someone just not like oh i like them and like they were in the news yeah like oh i want my approach to be like this so that's why i'm going to like that's my bet on myself i think like at the end of the day this conversation we're having is about like how we each think about how we want to bet on ourselves and how we want to bet on how we structure our future and I think if you can find a nice mirror of like, oh, okay, I like that approach, then you can, that's a good reason to have an inspo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And finding opportunity too. Yeah. I think like we have just done a lot of laying out kind of the options. Yes. I think it's a try a little bit of everything and see what starts to feel good and, and have the open conversations about yeah. it. Yeah. I would love to hear, just to wrap this up from an open conversation perspective, you were just mentioning that. <laughs> I'd love to hear what people thought about this conversation because talking about money can be so polarizing and like everybody's got a totally different perspective on it. So I'm excited to hear what folks think about this. You can go to the comment section on YouTube on this video and that's where we can see your comments um so we'd love to hear what you thought i would really love it and if you want to learn more about money money with katie show money with katie (laughs) show take your business further with the smart and flexible american express business gold card it's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases that's the powerful backing of american express learn more at americanexpress.com slash business gold card